sovereign ruler ever be would be a great thought to keep in mind this morning. As we open again to Romans chapter 9, we started this chapter last week, saw that it opens with a problem. The problem is that most Jewish people reject Jesus Christ as the Messiah, even though God promised to save the people of Israel. So the problem really settles down to, doesn't that mean that God's word has failed? Well, last week we saw that Paul answers, no. There's another explanation for why Israel is rejecting the gospel, why the Jewish people are rejecting him. And that is because God chooses only some of Abraham's descendants. He only ever intended to save some of them. And he points to two historic examples. He chose Isaac, not Ishmael. He chose Jacob, not Esau. And our passage last week emphasized that he did so, he does so, without any regard for any inherent worth or any personal effort, either past, present, or future, on the part of the individual. It's just his choice. Now that answers the problem about God's word. His word is still true. But it introduces a new problem that now Paul is ready to deal with. Here's that problem. And he, he just introduces it. He doesn't wait for us to, uh, to figure this out, that there's something wrong here. He tells us what we might be thinking. And that is to give saving grace to some and not others violates our human standards of fairness. It just doesn't seem fair, does it? Especially when we're dealing with, or when he is dealing with, eternal destiny of individuals. And he's just going to give saving grace to some, not to others? Well, that's the issue that Paul is now ready to confront in today's passage. And he states the problem, and then he gives the answer. It's important that we consider this passage today because this issue continues to challenge people in our day. We find it challenging, don't we? Once again, though, Paul's answer is simple and direct, pointing to who God is both his nature and his attributes. That's where we find the answer here. God is sovereign in all he does. God's gracious choice then, on the basis of who he is, it is right for him to choose some. His gracious choice And this is what uh, theologians like to call uh, God's election. But it is God's gracious election. He chooses 
to give grace. I like to emphasize that. And it's right. It's just. And we need to decide what's the right response to that kind of grace, to that kind of God. The right response would be a humble dependence. A humble dependence upon his grace in your life. Let's see how Paul puts this together. He's going to begin, of course, with the problem. We need to know the starting point. What is he trying to answer here? So he, uh, he states that in verse 14, almost inviting us to think about what he's just said. Doesn't that make you wonder about something? Maybe something like this, verse 14 tells us. Is there an injustice on God's part? Well, see, that's our human response. Yeah, that, that seems unjust. It's not fair. Uh, our, ours, uh, our culture and our day is uh, just about beside itself concerned about injustice. And, uh, and they can find injustice everywhere. Everything's unjust. The reason for that is that there was a widespread confusion between injustice, which is a genuine problem and a real sin and abhorrent to the Lord. But there's a difference between injustice and inequality. That's where our culture is confused. If everybody isn't the same, if everybody doesn't get exactly the same uh, situation in life, then that's unjust. Uh, Reality, no, that is unequal. But there is a reason why life is not equal. That reason has to do with the grace of God. Paul just uh, throws that accusation out. The possibility of injustice with God by no means. Absolutely not. And the rest of the passage is his effort through the Holy Spirit's guidance to show that that's true. There is no injustice. That God's gracious choice is right. It is actually righteous. And his point in verses 14 through 16 is that God bestows his grace with justice. He grants it to those some that he chooses. And it is right for him to do that because he has the right to select the objects of his mercy. God is choosing to be merciful to some And he has the right to make that call. So how does he prove that to us? Well, he does so by going to to a quotation from the Old Testament. It's not a random quotation, of course. He is quoting none other than the Lord himself. It's a conversation between the Lord and Moses. And so here is the Lord, not just speaking truth, but speaking truth about himself. We've got to pay attention to this. This is verse 14. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. 
First, let's ask, what's the difference between mercy and compassion? And the answer is virtually no difference at all. This is God saying the very same thing two slightly different ways. Why would he do that? Why would he repeat himself to make sure that we don't miss it? Two times says, you need to be convinced this is absolute truth. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. I am going to decide myself. God is claiming here. Uh, And he is upholding justice in doing so. But now, does that really answer it for you? You hear what God says that he's going to do, and does that really say, okay, well, of course, that, that means it's just. What's the basis here for this actually being a proof that what God does is right? Well, he's expecting that we have a certain familiarity with the context that he's quoting. And so, uh, if, if any of our uh, ABF participants have looked ahead at the questions that you are going to be discussing in uh, the fellowship hall uh, pretty soon, uh, then you know that I am encouraging uh, that discussion to go back to that context. Uh, we're not going to take the time to go there now, but I want to point out an important aspect of this. There's more in that context, but here I think is the key lesson to learn from that, is that this took place on the top of Mount Sinai. Moses is having this conversation with God because the people of Israel have just committed the sin of constructing and worshiping the golden calf. So Moses has dealt with them about that. He's, he's demolished it. He's reproved them. Some people died on that occasion. And now Moses has made his way back up on that mountain to ask God to forgive his people. This is intercession on Moses' part. And he secures God's agreement. Yes, I will forgive them. And then Moses asks for something remarkable. He says, show me your glory. Wow, what's Moses expect to see? We have no idea. But God's response is just as remarkable. He says, I'll do it. But I'll have to shield your eyes because you can't have a full exposure to this and live. And this is the verse right before the quotation. God said this, I will make all my goodness pass before you and proclaim before you my name, the Lord. That name and God's name itself is a summary of who he is. It's everything about him. God is going to proclaim that level of truth to Moses. And it's in connection with that, the revelation of who God is, that God then adds in this statement, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy 
on whom I show mercy. Let's put two and two together there. God says, this is who I am. I am the sovereign God of all. And I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. What he's equating here is that this claim that he has the right to distribute his grace as he sees fit is a part of who he is. It is central to his character, to his nature. He is the sovereign God. And if he isn't sovereign in everything, then he's not sovereign at all. He has to be sovereign in the distribution of his grace or he would cease to be God. In other words, this is not negotiable. This is not a power grab on God's part. This is necessary to who he is. And that's Paul's proof back in Romans 9. Here's how we know it's right, because God always does what is right. He upholds justice in everything he does. And what he does, including his distribution of saving grace, reflects the true standard of justice. This is justice at work. So he's got a conclusion to draw from that in verse 16. He says, so then it, the it here is the distribution of God's grace. He says, therefore it depends, so then it depends not on human will or exertion. Not because somebody says, I want that. That's not the basis. It's not because of human desire, nor is it because of human effort. It's not because people try so hard. God has the right to ignore the efforts of people. They are not a factor in this distribution of saving grace. It is just his choice. Furthermore, we have to acknowledge from verse 16 that justice does not require grace. Justice is all about what somebody deserves. And you see, our culture gets this all wrong as well. We think we deserve everything, which is why advertisers play it up so big. You deserve this fast food product. You deserve to have the smoothest shave that you can possibly have. You deserve it? I don't think so. I don't feel I deserve uh, a hamburger at McDonald's, which is why I don't ever expect one and don't ever seek one. (laughs) I hope I don't deserve it because I don't want it. (laughs) Justice is about what somebody actually deserves, not what they think. They ought to have. And justice, therefore, does not require grace. Grace is always more than you deserve. Justice cannot and does not require grace. 
But furthermore, inherent in verse 16 is that neither does justice prevent grace. Justice can't say, oh, no, no, you can't give something that that person doesn't deserve and also give it to this person who doesn't deserve it. Justice can't say, no, you can't do good things beyond what somebody deserves. Justice does not insist on equality. Justice has only to do with what somebody actually deserves. Nobody deserves God's grace. Nobody. Because God is just, nobody receives less than they deserve. Of course, when it comes right down to it, what do we deserve? We deserve eternity in hell. Stated another way, a little less severe, we deserve nothing. God could give us nothing, and nobody can say, I'm shortchanged. He didn't do what he's supposed to. Grace is distinct from what we deserve. Now, that is a challenging principle still, isn't it? But Christ told a story once that uh, provides some insight about this. It's a story you know. It's actually from a passage in the Gospels that we studied together in connection with a series on the parables of Christ just three years ago. So I know you remember this really well. I had to look it up to find out how long it's been. (laughs) I, I thought it was longer than that, but no, just three years ago. The story... Uh, that Christ told on that occasion is that there was a, uh, a, a, the owner of a vineyard, and he went out at 6 a.m. and found workers and hired them to come work in his vineyard. So 6 a.m., and the, the workday in those days was 12 hours, 6 a.m. to 6 p.m., and they agreed how much the wage would be, uh, one denarius. He went out again at 9 a.m. and found some others and said, well, you go too, and I'll just give you what is right. He didn't promise anything specific. Went out again at noon and found some more workers. He went out at 3 p.m., found some more. He went out at 5 in the afternoon, and there are some more people there. And he says, what are you doing here? Not working. Nobody hired us, they say. Well, then you go in the vineyard. Whatever is right, I'll give to you. Okay, they can't be expecting much. Then he tells the foreman, line them up. The one who arrived most recently, have them at the beginning of the line, and then give each one of them the full day's wage. Well, the ones in the back of the line realizing, boy, for one hour work, they got a denarius. By the time we get up there, he's going to really load us up with extra And they held out their hand, and they watched him put a denarius in. And what they do, human nature, they complained. You've made these one-hour workers equal to us 12-hour workers, and we're the ones that worked all day long. That's not fair. And here was the Lord's response. I have done you no wrong. You agreed for a denarius? You got a denarius. You got what you deserved. If I choose to be 
gracious and give extra to some, don't I have that right? Of course he does. The sovereign God has the right to do extra for some if he chooses. That's Paul's point in verses 14 through 16. And we all receive grace that we don't deserve. How do you respond to that? Humbly accept the grace that God offers. Express your gratitude for that grace. Don't complain about grace you didn't get. Express your gratitude for what you did receive and devote yourself to him in response. Okay, now Paul does what we don't expect. But after all, this is Paul. He doubles down and he says, yeah, do you know what else? There's a harder way of saying this, and I'm going to confront that one too. The harder way of saying it is verses 17 and 18. The Lord withholds his grace with justice. Okay, we, could, we can accept the first half, okay, all right. He gives extra to some, fine. But, of course, that also means some don't get it. And Paul says, and that is just as well. The Lord withholds his grace with justice. He has the right to choose his own goal with the people he created. Verse 17, he again proves this by quoting Scripture. He says, the Scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. God has a goal. It was a particular goal for this particular man, but there's a principle underlying this that applies to every person. God's word here is revealing truth for all persons, that he directs circumstances, he places individuals in in, in locations and with opportunities that he wants in order to accomplish what? Is the highest goal that person's happiness? No, the highest goal is that person's giving glory to God. God's glory is the highest good. It represents the the closest we come to a right relationship to God when that becomes our highest goal. What he says here all comes from from, uh, Matthew, uh, excuse me, from uh, Exodus uh, chapter 9. And once again, the verse right before this quotation uh, is very insightful. Here's what he actually says first. To Pharaoh, he says, For by now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, and you would have been cut off from the earth. And that would have been no more punishment than Pharaoh deserved. But I haven't done it yet, he says. I have raised you up, I have sustained you, 
in order to show my glory. What God wanted from Pharaoh was a more spectacular display of glory, and that meant the opportunity to do all ten plagues that he had planned. Pharaoh, of course, had opportunity to repent before each one of those. But Pharaoh was obstinate. Pharaoh chose to disregard God's command. And it gave God more opportunity to show his glory and to show his power and to extend his fame further throughout the earth. That's God's goal. And he has the right to choose his own goal. And if he can choose his own goal, then he can also choose his own path to get there and so orchestrate those circumstances. That's verse 18. He has the right to follow his own path because his mercy is at his own discretion. First half of verse 18, so then he has mercy on whomever he wills. That's the first summary of this whole passage. He bestows his mercy at his own discretion. Nobody deserves saving grace. That he gives it to anybody is just his grace alone. Based on nothing that can identify one person as more worthy than another, it's just God's choice. And that is who he is. Here's the other half, and this is the harder part. To summarize in verse 18, and he hardens whomever he will. Oh, Paul, I wish you hadn't said it that way. We could almost tolerate it to just say, well, and he just overlooks the other people. Mm, He actually does more. He hardens them, Paul concludes. And this comes directly, as you remember, from the example of Pharaoh himself. Fourteen times in the account in Exodus of God's dealings with Pharaoh, fourteen times it says that, and it's phrased three different ways, either Pharaoh hardened his own heart, or God hardened his heart, or simply his heart was hardened without identifying who was doing the hardening in that instance. Hardening was a part of his life. He was a participant, but before there's any record of Pharaoh hardening his own heart, we have record of God saying to Moses, I am going to harden his heart. But the implication that God's active role in that hardening, rendering somebody insensitive to his word, started with God. Keep in mind, though, the choice to sin did not start with God. God was dealing from the get-go with an individual who was committed and so proud that his way was the way things were going to work out and it doesn't matter what God says no. That's who uh, uh, Exodus is describing for us. And with that kind of a headstrong commitment of rebellion against God, God hardened him even more. 
course, the amazing thing isn't that God uh, withholds grace from some who don't deserve it. The amazing thing is that he gives grace to some who don't deserve it. Withholding it, that's just justice. Granting it, that's grace. Hardening, then, doesn't cause people to sin. It simply maintains them in a simple, sinful path that they have already chosen. Pharaoh, again, I tell you, had repeated opportunities to repent. But he experienced what many others experienced, that refusal after refusal after refusal. No, I'm not going to give in. I'm going to continue in my own way, doing that over and over and over again. What happens is that sin tends to turn in upon the sinner. Paul expressed this in the very first chapter of Romans, and he said, they determined to go this way, so God gave them over to do it. Okay, that's what you want to do. I'll let you do it. It's another way of saying God hardens the heart, reaping the consequences of our own sinful choices. That's what sin develops into. turns in upon the sinner. A Midwest farmer chose to raise horned Hereford cattle because of its excellent quality beef. It's a great market for that, uh, that particular breed. But the breed also poses one particular challenge, the very direction of the horns coming out on, on this kind of cattle uh, with a sharp point on the end when a bull gets uh, aggressive in his maturity with those horns can do damage to other animals or even to the farmer himself. So there was a technique that farmers developed and it had one of the ways they did it is they would hang weights on the ends of these, uh, of these horns and so as they grew, they would curve around. And so there was no pointy end that could hurt anybody. But when they're first developing this technique, they didn't realize that the horns are going to keep on growing and would eventually grow right in, back into the head, and kill the animal. What a picture of sin coming around and turning upon the individual itself. It is self destructive. So what does that mean? It means turn from sin now. Don't imagine that there's a safe period of time. I think I can do this for a few more days or a few more weeks or maybe just a few more years of my life. I'll indulge and then I'll get right with God. This passage urges, no, you turn from sin now. It's the only time you know you actually have the opportunity. Stop the cycle of sin. 
Humble yourself. Confess to God. Bow before Him. That's a decision that you have to make. But our gracious God invites you to ask for His help. He'll help you turn from sin. So we saw last week a protest that, well, I don't think God chose me. You know how, how you settle that? You choose God. That's the guarantee He chose you as well. You choose Him. Ask for His help to respond to His grace. Turn from the sin that is keeping you from Him. Let's bow for prayer. Father, we are overwhelmed with the reality of how gracious you are. Withholding, at least for a time, the punishment we deserve. Granting the opportunity for a relationship with you. Father, thank you for your grace. Would you forgive us for the instances in which we don't respond to your grace with humility? Would you keep us from the pride that thinks we know better or that we deserve more? Father, we ask for victory, for the salvation of the souls of those without Christ, and for a heart of dependence on you and devotion to you for all who are the recipients of your abundant grace. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.